You're listening to an event from the U.S. Institute of Peace, part of the USIP Podcast Network. For more information about our work around the world, visit usip.org and check us out on social media. Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, depending on where you are joining us from. My name is Scott Worden, and I am the Director of Afghanistan and Central Asia Programs here at USIP. We're thrilled to have so many of you joining us both in person and online and for this important discussion. Also, I would like to thank the Voice of America, which are our co-hosts for this event. We're joined by Aisha Tanzim, Rahul Gul Sarwan of Voice of America, Gypsy Gian Kaiser of the Committee to Protect Journalists, and our USIP colleagues, Kate Bateman, and joining us just this week, Barry Salam. We invite all of you to take part in today's discussion and the question and answer at the end of the panel, you can submit your questions online by using the chat box function located just below the video player on the USIP event page. We also ask that you please include your name and specify where you are joining us from. For those that are here in person, we ask you to raise your hand during the Q&A session and one of my colleagues will find you with a microphone to ask a question. Others can uh, engage with us and with each other on Twitter throughout the event using the hashtag, hashtag AfghanistanUSIP, all one word. As many of you know, USIP was founded by Congress, the US Congress, over 35 years ago as an independent, nonpartisan national institution with the goal of preventing, mitigating, and resolving violent conflict abroad. USIP has been involved in Afghanistan since 2002. We had an office from 2008 until we had to unfortunately close it in 2021 when the Taliban took over. But we continue to have programs on both on the ground working with Afghans that are in Afghanistan, with Afghans in the diaspora, promoting human rights, women's rights, and hopefully more inclusive governance in the future. Our co-host today is The Voice of America, which is committed to free press freedom around the world. VOA journalists have worked in numerous countries that, remain, that restrain free speech and they promote independent journalism in Afghanistan. I want to thank them and their experts for contributing to this discussion today. In the last month, the already dire situation in Afghanistan has taken yet another distressing turn. The Taliban have enacted additional restrictions on Afghan women, prohibiting them from attending university as well as for working for international and national NGOs. These new policies have been met with a strong objection across the international community and from within Afghanistan, but we are seeing the limits of foreign leverage and the extent of Taliban intolerance. With so many of the freedoms that Afghans had during the time of the Afghan Republic being taken away by the Taliban, the media sector emerges as a fragile anomaly. Afghanistan's press stood out as being the most open and independent in the region during the Republic, and it was one of the most important gains of the democratic constitution that Afghanistan enacted in 2004. The Taliban have pressured many media outlets to close and have placed harsh restrictions on women's appearance and participation in the media sector, as we will hear. But several prominent independent news outlets remain operational and continue to deliver essential objective information to Afghans about news and governance. The discussion today will focus on the good reporting that is occurring, the threats that Afghan journalists face, and ways that a free media can be better supported and protected going forward. So to discuss these issues, we have our excellent panel that I mentioned before, 
Uh, we'll be moderated by Kate Bateman, who's a senior expert here at USIP. But first, we will see a video illustrating the issue that is produced by VOA. And then after that, the panelists will come forward. So thank you for joining us. خوش آمدین هدامی پیک پگا هستم مهمان شما هستیم و خوشبختانه امروز کلی مهماندار یک دفعه خودت احساس میکنم میرم ای کاش که امی امروز می بود امی دقیقه می بود امی لازم می بود که من امی برنامه را پیش می بردم فکر میکنم که من او روزا را یک خواب بوده دیدیم و ما امی دوازده سالم که در رسانه کار کردم خیلی باز شوق بسیار خوب با ما آخرین جایی که کار میکردم تلویزیون پیکان بود دو ساعت برنامه لایف داشت و اتا فکر میکردم که همه قسم ما پیشرفت کرده میریم و همه قسم میمانه هیچ وقت در خوابم نمیدیدم که من ایتی یک روز شده که اتا نتانم از دروازی خانیم بیرون برم و نتانم دیگه بیایم در برنامه و من برنامه بدم خواستم که صدای مردم من از طریق رسانه بلند بکنم اون مردمم که عدقل نمیتونه اونا صدای خدا بلند بکنن و کس صدایشونه بشنه پس حکومت فیلی میخواه که زنا را عصف کرده بره اول از رسانه، دوم از پنتون و دانشگاه، سیوم از سرک و بازار بلاخره امو که اینا در خانه بیشینن و خلاص از وقتی که ریژیم تغییر کرد، من تبدیل به یک خانم خانه شدم به یک خانمی که در اطراف زندگی میکنه اصلا سواد نداره، درس نخونده مجبور است در خانه بیشینه و کار خانی خود انجام بده و مواظبت از کودکای خدا بکنه هر کل وضعیت خبرنگارا خراب است ما هم روزه شاهد ازی هستیم که نه تنها خانما بلکه خبرنگارای مردم مورد لاتکوب قرار میگیره کمرایشان میده میشه و اونا را نمیمونن با آزادی بیان و امروزه حقیقت ها بازگو نمیشه خیلی حقیقت است که امروز پنهان میمونه ما در تاریکی تمام قرار داریم پیلن زن پویدم چی دوی ما مرکه جونده می پریدی سرا سرکه ز نگده دو میاشتی دوی سر پا بند که وام دوی با لومره و پینزل سرازو که چیز بندی وام هر اوراز براتلل مات دوی اوراز با دو دری زل داشته تکراری ده چی دوی با زمال سونه و پخی با سلیش ساتا تردلی و از ماسترگی بایرا و تردلی دوی با ما تاویل چی ولی تا دی طالبانو پرولان دی لیکل کردی دای سو پستونه دی چی زغالان تا سر شریک کمه چی دا دی آقا چو چی زی پی دیر زوره ولما آقا دی 
یو کو د انجونو د تعلیم مسله وچ ما ویل چې د ولې د انجونو کونځي باندې د بیان د آزادۍ خبره و یعنی په حقیقت کې د بیان د آزادۍ سلبول دا د جنگ ته د خلکو هڅول دي او دا تاسو کوي او دا د افغانستان د راتلونکي لپاره ډیر خطرناک ده اوس وخت د افغانستان د رسنیو حالت څومره چې زه ترې خبرېږمه یو ډیر بد حالت کې دي بېلابېل محدودیتونه دي له قرائنو او له علایمو نه چې څه ښکاري هغه دا ده چې افغانستان له یو بدې خوا نه له یوې ښې خوا نه بدې خواته روان دی او دا ډېره ځورونکې ده زما لپاره ډېره سخته ده چې په افغانستان کې اوسېږمه علت یې دا دی چې زه د خپل طبیعت نه او د خپل وجدان نه د مجبوریت له وجې مکلف ځان ګڼم چې د افغانستان د خلکو لپاره لیکل وکړمه په هغه واقعیتونو لیکل وکړمه چې دا اوس څه روان دي د افغانستان غرونه د افغانستان سیندونه د افغانستان جنتي هوا دا سپېڅلي او پاک نفسه خلک دا به ټول زما یادېږي ځکه به مې یادېږي چې مونږ له دې وطن سره مینه کړې ده او مونږ په دې وطن کې مینه کړې ده دا وطن د هېرولو نه دی او ان شاء الله زما مهاجرت او زما د دې وطن نه تګ به ډېر زیات طولاني نه وي زه باور لرم چې زه به ډېر زر خپل وطن ته بېرته راوګرځمه شما شنونده رادیو دنیا هستید راد دنیا بار دیگر صدای رسا در حنجره این سرزمین تاریخی یک دنیا افم نگو پرداخت بکنیم هر کارمند ما ماها میشه که از ما ماش طلبان است ولی ما نتانستیم که ماش پرداخت بکنیم قبل از سقوط نظام مخلوق جمهوریت منابع آیداتی ما از درک اعلانات بود چی اعلانات بازرگانی و یا چی برنامه را که توسط بعضی از محصاد سپانسر می و ما را به نشر می رسندیم. بعد از اینکه نظام سقوط کرد در افغانستان اصاد مردم ضربه بسار بیدید و مردم با رکود اقتصادی مواجه شدن مانند گذشته منابع آیداتی ندارن اما متاسفانه بعد از بقدرت رسیدر طالبان از این که دلچسبی محسسات و برنامه ها کمتر شد ما برنامه های مختلف داشتیم برنامه های دینی داشتیم برنامه های فرهنگی داشتیم برنامه های اجتماعی داشتیم برنامه های سیاسی داشتیم برنامه های تعلیمی داشتیم برنامه های تفریحی داشتیم که شامل موسیقی بود و امفتانه ما بیشتر علاقه مندی داشتن و همچنان بخش خبر داشتیم که سر هر ساعت اخبار به سمه با تناسب زمان جمهوریت فعلا برنامه ما بسیار محدود است تمرکز ما بالای برنامه های اسلامی هست در حال حاضر چرانه که در زمان جمهوریت پوشش خبری داشت رسانه ما فعلا ندارد بر آمدن دوباره طالبان در افغانستان ما کمتر دسترسی به اطلاعات داریم و همچنان در بخش اطلاع رسانی موضوعی که بزد نظام باشه ما حق نداریم که نشر بکنیم 
اگر نشر بکنیم مورد بازخواس و پرسجو پرسش قرار میگیریم که چرا شما این موضوع رو نشر کردیم که خلاف پلیسی نظام هست هر سالن همکاری ما ترس سالن نگرانی دارن که ما بادایی از پیش ما یک چیز نشر شوی یک حرف گفته شوی که ما مورد مجازات قرار بگیریم این نگرانی هم وجود داره که بالای روحیه همکاری ما تاثیر گذاشته با بسیار فشارهای روحی و روانی کار خود دنبال میکنند کارمندای ما از سی و پنج کارمند به دوازده کارمند کاهش پیدا کرده و اگه وضعیت دوام بکنه ممتاب نخواد بیاریم ممکن است هر لحظه تسلیم شویم و دروازه رسانه خود بسته بکنیم joining us um, in the room and online. Uh, my name is Kate Bateman. Uh, thank you to VOA for um, producing the powerful video for us, uh, as well as the three Afghan um, media workers and activists who are willing to tell their stories. Um, I think the film powerfully demonstrates for us um, the pressures and danger that they're working under. Um, and we'll explore these, these challenges more in our discussion, as well as take a forward-looking and you know, more positive look at what they can do to continue their work and how, um, how we can support them. I'd like to first introduce our panelists. Um, to my left, Aisha Tanzim is currently the director of Voice of America's South and Central Asia Division. She was VOA's Afghanistan and Pakistan Bureau Chief from 2015 to 21. For seven years, she traveled the length and breadth of the country to report on the conflict in detail. Um, she was in Kabul when Afghanistan fell to the Taliban and has returned to the country multiple times since then. Some of her award-winning reporting anticipated the loss of press freedom under the Taliban that we witnessed today. Uh, Barry Salam, uh, to Aisha's left, is currently a, a senior program officer for Afghanistan at USIP. In over 20 years, Mr. Salam helped establish media and civil society organizations, uh, including the Civil Society and Human Rights Network, Afghan National Journalists Union, and Journalist Safety Committee. He served as director of Na Media and Rasa TV, director of Good Morning Afghanistan Radio, among uh, other media roles. He also served in government positions, including at the Foreign Ministry and as chairman of the MEC, an Afghan and international anti-corruption body. Mr. Salam has been awarded multiple fellowships in the US and Europe. He was elected by his peers to be the civil society speaker at the 2014 London Conference on Afghanistan and the 2011 Bonn Conference. Uh, Mr. Rahim Sarwan has been a member of the Afghan media since 2003, has worked for VOA since 2006. Uh, he's received several awards, including the Face of Press Freedom 2020 award by Free Speech Hub. Sarwan has traveled to 28 provinces of Afghanistan for his reporting, interviewing many Afghan leaders, uh, military figures, international diplomats, um, and U.S. NATO commanders. In 2020, um, Mr. Sarwan covered the first intra-Afghan dialogue in Qatar, and in 2021, uh, he too was on the ground witnessing the government collapse. Sarwan later evacuated to the United States. He now works for VOA as counter-narcotics reporting project producer and editor. 
And Ms. Gypsy Guyan-Kaiser's joined the Committee to Protect Journalists as Advocacy and Communications Director in 2021. Her work is focused on advancing structural change to ensure freedom of the press, defend human rights, and secure social and economic justice. Ms. Kuyen Kaiser has worked nearly two decades with international NGOs and as a journalist as well. She's participated in missions to more than a dozen countries, including Argentina, Egypt, India, Singapore, and South Africa. Previously, she fought corruption as the media and public relations manager at Transparency International's Secretariat in Berlin, as she was also heavily involved in CPJ's efforts to help Afghan journalists in the wake of the Taliban takeover. Uh, so I'd like to first turn to Aisha um, and ask if you can please describe for us the Afghan media landscape, to landscape today and how it has changed since the Taliban took power. Um, what are some of the most harmful restrictions and challenges uh, facing media workers in Afghanistan? Thank you, Kate. Uh, so I would uh, divide the Afghan media landscape in three parts. Part one is Afghan journalists that are still living in Afghanistan and working there. Part two would be Afghan journalists who were forced to flee the country and are elsewhere um, and are working from outside. And then part three would be international media covering Afghanistan, which both includes foreign correspondents traveling there and then international media outlets covering from outside. So part one, um, I would let the video speak for itself. Uh, the conditions are the harshest and the threats are the most dangerous. And you said what's most harmful. What's most harmful is that over the last year and a half, Taliban have been issued a number of official and unofficial decrees that are so vaguely worded that they can be interpreted anyway. And when I talk to Afghan journalists, there's not a single one of them that's not heavily self-censoring. It's because um, it, there's not one ministry or one media department that's controlling it all. There's the vice and virtue ministry, there's the intelligence agency. On any story, anybody can get offended from local Taliban to, like I said, the intelligence agencies. They can call you, they can come and visit you, they can pick you up, they can detain you, keep you for hours or for months as we saw in the case of the activists. So it has had a chilling effect on media. And of course, if you're a woman, it's doubly uh, difficult. I mean, Reporters Without Borders collected data that said, uh, when I was looking at the numbers, uh, female journalists have been literally wiped out from most of the country. Um, uh, they remain mostly in capital Kabul, a little bit here and there, but even then very suffocating conditions. So if, if you're an anchor on television today, or even a guest, you have to completely cover your face, not just your head. But if you're a reporter, you have very little access, if any at all, and it's decreasing by the day. So you're turned away from events, you're turned away from press conferences, you're not allowed to enter buildings where Taliban officials are holding these events. And when you travel, you're harassed and, and, and whatnot. So uh, the second group is Afghan journalists working from abroad. Some of them, and that is where some of the most robust journalism is happening. Uh, they continue to have their sources, uh, some government officials uh, in security and bureaucracy that are still working in Afghanistan, but they still have their family and friend network in country. People tell them what's happening. Uh, and some of them are officially working with the media outlets. Some of them are unofficially just writing a blog or reporting on social media. 
but they have their own challenges, you know, financial challenges. A lot of them are refugees in other countries. How do they survive their legal status? So that. And then the foreign correspondents or the international media that's covering uh, Afghanistan, they had a honeymoon period of a couple of months after the takeover. That I think is over by now. Uh, so increasingly getting a visa to Afghanistan is very difficult. Um, when I tried the last time in August after years of covering Afghanistan and after being there during the takeover and going back there multiple times, uh, they denied the visa, didn't tell me why. Um, I've heard that there's a there's a blacklist of journalists and uh, you know VOAs on it. Uh, we hear this from our sources on the ground. And now when you apply, you have to go through a committee. Um, and if you're lucky enough to get a visa, movement is far more restricted. And especially since the killing of Ayman Zawahiri, there's a lot more monitoring and you know a lot more uh, need to report to Afghan authorities as to where you going and what you're doing. So yes, the days of uh, when Afghan media used to be vibrant and journalists used to ask tough questions and hold the government accountable um, within the country uh, seem to be over. Thank you for giving us that um, overview, very helpful overview. Um, I'd like to turn to Barry now. Um, you can certainly speak to you know, some of the same issues that, that I should describe, but I, I'd also like to hear from you the difference between now and the Taliban's rule in the 1990s when they, they did ban independent media and TV altogether. This time they're allowing some media to operate to some degree, um, uh, in the mean, but also closing down outlets and detaining journalists and activists. So why, why do you think this is? Can you speak more to what you think their strategy is, if there is one, and, and how they're implementing it? Thank you very much, Kate. Uh, good morning to you, to my fellow panelists, and to the audience. Uh, well, let me begin by saluting and, and commending uh, the brave and courageous journalists, but also human rights defenders who are still in Afghanistan and keeping up the fight for our fundamental rights and freedoms. After watching this emotional video, I, I really, yeah, we, we, we can imagine what they are going through. Um, but. Um, on the Taliban's ideology and policies in the past and present time, I personally believe that the Taliban, uh, Taliban's ideology hasn't changed much since the 1990s. They still explicitly reject modern notions like human rights, democracy, they, they oppose uh, uh, diversity and political inclusion, they, they still pursue their harsh discriminatory policies towards women. Um, they have resumed enacting their draconian uh, laws and punishments, as we see, and they uh, resort to uh, violent extremism to achieve their ends. But yes, in some respects, they have uh, undergone substantial change. Uh, uh, especially in terms of their uh, tactics and approaches. Uh, more specifically, they have gained uh, uh, sophisticated skills in communicating, in negotiating, and in waging uh, information battle. Uh, over the past uh, 25 years, they have learned that uh, media plays 
a substantial role in how you can position yourself and wage especially an ideological war. Uh, so they have uh, engaged tremendously uh, with social media, but also traditional media over the past uh, uh, 20 years. And uh, as a result, I believe that this time around, unlike the 1990s, they have decided to keep the media, but bring them under their tight control uh, and use them and even force them to uh, promote their image and uh, strengthen their power base. So this is obviously, uh, to me personally, a mani manipulative uh, strategy that they're uh, executing and they're putting a number of measures in place to do that. The first one is uh, creating this atmosphere of fear among journalists and media. And as uh, media support organizations, multiple of them, have reported over the past one and a half years, there have been uh, more than 2,500 cases of uh, detentions, um, uh, you know, harassments and uh, tortures, arrests and uh, humiliations and other types of violences. And there's no, uh, well, there is no one to take responsibility for addressing these uh, cases. Uh, so there's no one the journalist can turn to. And then imposing, as Aisha mentioned, the unending um, uh, uh, trend of, um, you know, um, restrictions and censorships. So the, over the past uh, one year, they have issued multiple decrees, one by the Supreme Leader, uh, and there was one by the Vice and Virtue Department, and there was another one, a 10-article uh, code of conduct for media, all of them indirectly or directly implying that journalists should you know, follow the Taliban narrative and shouldn't be critical of its policies. Um, so it's drawing uh, the lines as to what is right and what's wrong. So I recently heard that the Taliban have assigned missions to go to different provinces and talk in person with uh, 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 editors and with the journalists and tell them uh, how to conduct themselves. I mean, in the provinces, the, the issue, it's, it's getting much more critical because uh, the local uh, information ministry departments are asking uh, media outlets to send their news bulletins for review even before getting published. The other, the third challenge that they have created is creating this legal vacuum. In fact, there is no mass media law right now. So there is no legal protection whatsoever. You, the journalists don't know where the boundaries are and how, what is it that they can go to in case uh, they're accused of, uh, 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 you know, violations they uh, so th initially they said that they've reinstated the old mass media law but uh, at some point they said that it has been altered but they didn't publish the new version and then the supreme leader at one point said that all man-made uh, you know laws are invalid 
especially the ones that were produced during the past regime. Uh, so that leaves journalists with no legal or editorial pro uh, protection. And then access to information. Uh, well, uh, all uh, international channels who were the main source of information for uh, our population were kicked out. Uh, so the retransmissions were banned and even the uh, uh, committed, um, uh, some of the committed uh, media outlets, they were banned as well. There were at least 10 of them that were, uh, 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 you know, named as illegal and that includes uh, Hashtis. So we've got uh, Mujib Merdal here who, who used to run it and uh, he, he got imprisoned uh, back then as well. So, and they, they have also dismantled or disempowered the, the main media support organizations. At one point, they even didn't allow the, uh, uh, the, the main umbrella organization, the, the Federation, to hold a press conference to discuss the plight of the mm -hmm. Afghan journalists. So it's that, down to that level. And they get threatened on a regular basis. And uh, I wouldn't uh, you know, repeat what is going on with women because they, the conditions for women are much more harsher. It's, uh, you know, the segregation and uh, getting denied entry into conferences and uh, getting denied interviews with uh, um, uh, authorities. Uh, if we were time, we could also talk about financial sustainability. So the whole strategy, I think, is to bring the media under tight control and use them in their own favor and uh, those who don't comply, they will be shut down or forced out of the country. Uh, so about the solutions, we could always talk uh, in the next round. Thank you. Thank you. I mean, you've both highlighted the ways that the Taliban is trying to transform the media into a, a tool of the state or rather than um, uh, perhaps with a facade that there is still an independent media in the country. But um, I would like to ask Rahim now to, um, uh, to help us think more about non-traditional media, social media platforms, and the um, important role that they're playing right now. Um, can, you, can you discuss um, the role social media as well as citizen journalists are playing in this environment? You know, how can they be helpful in mitigating the harm that the Taliban is doing? And, um, and, and if you'd like to also you know, uh, help us think about what kinds of support um, citizen journalists might be, be able to uh, receive and use uh, effectively. Thanks, Kate, and uh, good morning to our, my fellow panelists and audience and colleagues over there. So, uh, as earlier said, uh, since uh, the recent report shows that from 579 media out outlets that they were operating uh, before Taliban, so we just have 192. And the rest, they left or abandoned their working, and the press freedom is right now in Afghanistan under a lot of pressure. And Taliban are daily basis controlling with the written decrees, code of conduct, and oral, orally they can have more restrictions. It's really tough for media right now to report from security issues, military issues, and what's going on right now in the country. They stopped media to, to do that. And as well, political, there is no political readies, no protests. So it's really hard for traditional media and, and as well in overall 
or all regular media to cover such kind of incidents. Third, human rights issues, that's another issue for the Taliban that they are stop media to cover that. And third, the women rights, right now we have the big issue of uh, having access to education of girls. So no one can um, cover that one. So now it's the time for the citizen journalists and social media that they can provide uh, information to regular media and independent media in order to sustain. Uh, in current time, citizen journalists, either official citizen journalists or unofficial citizen journalists, they have a key role. And their role become very significant in these days since these citizen journalists, they have no label uh, from any organizations, media outlets, so they can easily go to any area and just pick the phone and pick the picture images. In uh, recent times, we had two incidents right now in past one week. One was the um, attack on the um, foreign ministry, and uh, we had more than like 20 dozens of people killed there. And media were not allowed to go to the scene in order to take images, footage, and pictures. And uh, the citizen journalists, they had a key role there, and they had a pictures. And these officials, uh, citizen journalists, either hired by media in exile. We recently have more media outlets they uh, established uh, in exile. We, I can name it to you, and they are in the United States and Europe. So these journalists, these media, they can use the citizen journalism, official citizen uh, journalists, they pay for them in somehow, but in order to get stories. Uh, stories can be images, footage, and as well, uh, story by to have uh, for website stories. And uh, the risk is less for the citizen journalists because uh, Taliban is really hard for them to follow that who did the story. Their identity kept uh, anonymous, so no one can report it. And uh, for that reason, the official citizen uh, journalism is right now very key in order to have a press freedom in Afghanistan. And secondly, social media, not right now with the Taliban, and previous, uh, previously with the Republican time, so social media had a really key uh, role, and social media become uh, a source for the regular media in order to get news and stories from there, and people are posting things, and they repost it and, and give it back to their audience. So um, uh, I think uh, Twitter is the leading uh, social media platform right now in Afghanistan. Taliban are using Twitter, and there are more Taliban uh, on Twitters, and they have followers, and uh, their spokespersons, they just use uh, a Twitter in order to have their own propaganda, and they just give whatever they want. Because in Twitter and social media, regular media cannot question that why this incident happened, why you are, you are a responsible government and you have to answer the people's questions. So they have, they use Twitter accounts and those people that they are opponents of the current Taliban regime or the Taliban government, they can also uh, raise their um, concerns on Twitter. And socially uh, public, uh, ordinary people, they use uh, both uh, Facebook, social media and Twitter. Uh, and these days we have the uh, blue tech issue with the Taliban. So some of the Taliban members got that one, some of their spokesperson. And uh, they all, even they are ready to pay $8 per month to Twitter in order to have this 
verification uh, of the tech. Um, in the meantime, uh, YouTube become another source for uh, Afghan media. And YouTubers we have, they are in Afghanistan, either female YouTubers, and we see in multiple occasions they're going on streets and interview uh, Taliban members and uh, bringing some really good video. And people are watching right now YouTubes, and they have many YouTubers, they have YouTube channels, and that could be uh, another uh, platform in social media which is fulfill the gap that we have with the absent of the real, uh, traditional, and regular uh, media. And I think with, uh, with the current uh, restrictions that uh, earlier said that about the restrictions, and uh, it's quite really difficult for a journalist to go out and film and talk to people. And ordinary people on the streets, they are afraid. They are not willing to share information with media. Mm -hmm. They become on the screen so definitely, I had the case right now in Afghanistan. So we interviewed one of the person and uh, Taliban asked him that why you had an interview with that particular media outlet. Mm -hmm. So it's really deteriorating situation. Uh, we are about to losing the press freedom or we will have a controlled media in Afghanistan. But in the meantime, I, I really support and I really think that uh, citizen journalism uh, if we support more citizen journalism so we can sustain mm. and post-Taliban we will not, uh, we, we will still have uh, press freedom in Afghanistan. Thank you. That is a good segue <clears throat> to um, turn to Gypsy. I see her nodding at a lot of what all three of you have said. So um, I'd like to ask you about your, your work on media freedom and protecting journalists around the world. Um, and human, and also human from a human rights lens, um, a lot of these challenges must sound familiar to you. Uh, can you help us understand what some of what what works in these contexts where there's an authoritarian or hostile environment towards the press? What works to protect journalists and enable them to continue their work? Sure. I thank you for having us here. Um, you know, first I should note that the Committee to Protect Journalists as, as an organization um, that is more than 40 years old, um, this crisis involving the Afghan media, the strangulation of um, the ability to report and the ability to have actual income from the reporting, both on the international as well as the national level, um, is, was an unprecedented um, situation at its peak when the Taliban took over um, the country. I wanted to add a little bit to the context that was given. Um, one is that we produce an annual prison census that looks at how many journalists are imprisoned um, in a particular year. And I should note that after a 12-year hiatus from our prison census, Afghanistan is, is back. The, um, the census captures, it's a snapshot in time, meaning that we, we register whoever's in prison on December 1st. So the people who are let in and out throughout the year are not necessarily captured there, but we have three journalists, at least three journalists imprisoned in Afghanistan at the moment after 12 years of not appearing on the census. The other thing I wanted to note is that despite the, the golden 20 year period, if you will, 
of um, you know media development and investment in the 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 journalism independent journalism sector there um, there are over the over the last decade there were 17 unsolved murders of journalists um, in Afghanistan and that is something that was not duly investigated even under the previous um, administrations so the journalists have always been fair game um, when there is when there are power struggles in particular um, or any kind of instability so what we're seeing is is an absolute deterioration of the the media environment in Afghanistan but there were problems um, that precede this period so the the incredible resilience of Afghan journalists is is something that just has to be um, honored and supported um, in terms of sort of contextualizing in, in relation to other authoritarian contexts, um, I wanted to note this issue of the, the decrees and the codes of conduct, et cetera, this, this vagueness that allows the Taliban to, to do what it wants, essentially, and to change its mind constantly, um, is something that's a little different in other uh, context, for example, our observation of Myanmar and Belarus and Iran is uh, that there's a legal infrastructure there and an apparatus meant to suffocate dissent and criticism, which means that this is mainly implemented through anti-state laws. In Belarus, there's a clear anti-state law. In Myanmar, there is a, an anti-state law as well that criminalizes reporting um, that crosses a certain line. In Belarus, for instance, a journalist that's hauled off to prison, and, and these are both contexts um, in Iran as well, with very high levels of journalist imprisonment. Um, the, the lawyers who are representing journalists in, uh, in courts, courts in Belarus have to sign a non-disclosure agreement. So for example, they're not in a position to tell families, um, the families of those they are representing, exactly what is going on. They, they run the risk of losing their legal license to practice. So these kinds of sort of clear rules, if you will, as terrible as they are, is something that the Taliban is not doing, which gives them a lot more leeway um, to do things that they otherwise um, might sort of be held to account. There's no legal recourse for Afghan journalists. And this is, this is a fundamental difference there. Um, I think the other piece is that uh, Myanmar, Belarus, Iran are quite sophisticated at tracking citizens. Uh, so the surveillance piece is much stronger and developed there. Afghanistan is not there yet. It may get there through an alliance with um, like-minded states that may lead the Taliban to acquire certain technology, et cetera. So that's something um, to look out for. And um, one of the, the other things is that there are at least at this point no killings of journalists that we have registered. There's the the um, 
the torture and the beatings um, and the, the involvement of the intelligence service, which is a very pronounced aspect of this. Um, whereas in Myanmar, I mean, they've murdered three journalists over the last year um, in detention. These, these are sort of, I, I just wanted to paint a landscape of, of what some of the differences are. Um, now, in terms of what is what, what sort of needs to be done, um, one of the things we, we published a report in August of last year looking at a year of what is the state of press freedom in Afghanistan following the, the Taliban takeover. And one of the things that we are looking for is really for the, the regulation of media to be in the hands of civil ministries within the government, meaning remove the intelligence service from the development or implementation of these, of these um, you know, codes of conduct or whatever it may be. And I'm, I'm going to cite here just to, um, to give an example. There was in December, Taliban authorities, um, intelligence authorities raided with 50 armed officers. They surrounded and entered the home of Sabihullah Nuri. Um, and he was held for 48 hours. He's a radio journalist, the journalist's cousin and director of the station. Um, was was sort of the one providing the information about what happened to him. But I mean, imagine the Taliban General Directorate of Intelligence sending 50 officers to descend upon your home um, and, and to haul you in for 48 hours. And there's no there's no ministry that you can go to. There's no other group. So this removal from the um, intelligence groups is, is really important. Um, the other thing is for the international community to make sure that that happens in some way, shape, or form, that journalists are included in the discussions about humanitarian aid, about security. This, this critical component of the intelligence services um, should be a point of discussion because the fact of the matter is, as you rightly noted, um, you know, a ministry is, is attacked and it's impossible to know independently what happened and what does that mean for security in the region? What, you know, it's in the vital interests of other countries. So mm -hmm. I'm going to stop there because I'm, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm going on about this, um, but we, we can speak further. Okay, thank you so much, though. Really interesting um, angles and, and other aspects you brought up. So I, I'd like to shift, though, before we go to the audience Q&A, um, I'd like to ask you uh, to more probably briefly just um, all of you comment on um, what, what media workers and journalists are doing right now to continue their work uh, very bravely and safely, uh, or as safely as possible. Um, how are they adapting to all these restrictions? And, and then and what support, what is the most important thing for outsiders to do in order to support them? Um, so if we could, turn, let's turn to Aisha first. Oh, okay, thank you again. 
Um, I can actually speak to what international organizations like the VOA are doing um, because we have decades of experience and we're not the only ones, BBC, Deutsche Welle, our sister organization, RFERL. We all have decades of experience of uh, uh, dealing with oppressive regimes, some of uh, whom Gypsy mentioned. So, for example, when the Taliban shut down our television programs on local affiliates, uh, we anticipated the move and we were ready with a 24-7 satellite TV channel beaming directly to the homes of Afghans in, uh, in Afghanistan. And we were lucky that the Afghan population was well-versed in satellite television technology and watching back from the 90s and satellite was a healthy mix. And then we didn't just do it for ourselves, we partnered up. So on our satellite channel, it's not just our TV program, which went from one hour to like eight, nine hours and growing daily. Uh, we now have the Deutsche Welle shows on our satellite stream. We have RFERL shows on our uh, stream. So we partner up with other international organizations because nobody has the resources to do it all by themselves. And, and everybody doesn't need to be doing So we've pulled up resources and we've done it um, and so now we have this 24 7 television channel in Dari and Pashto doing independent journalism with both male and female anchors and we are trying to fill up the vacuum uh, wherever we feel that the Taliban are creating it including in holding them accountable. So we had a show, for example, on women's education, in particular girls' rights to go to school. So we had Taliban spokesman there, Zabiullah Mujahid, and uh, countering him, we had a strong Afghan female politician, Shuk uh, uh, Shukriya Baraksai. So she argued against him. Uh, so all the voices that are being eliminated from uh, local Afghan media, women, activists, artists, musicians, uh, we are inviting them to speak up. Same with the radio station. When recently Taliban shut down our 15 FM radio uh, stations in the country, uh, we are now uh, using shortwave and medium wave to beam uh, news to Afghanistan. So we are trying our best to make sure independent media and in an objective news and analysis reaches the Afghan audience. Uh, we, are, we have a lot of call-in shows and we get a lot of information from the people who call in. Uh, often they don't want to repeat their names on air. Uh, of course, we had to evacuate our own journalists for security reasons, uh, but these are providing us uh, as uh, uh, Sarwan uh, said, you know, citizen journalists who are giving into information, not even for money. I mean, look at the bravery of the three characters that we showed in the video. They're still, two of them are still in Afghanistan. And we were very clear with them. We told them this video will be online and this will even be translated and uh, repeated and been back into the country. And they were okay to be on camera, on record. That's bravery. So you're finding it all over Afghanistan and what we are doing is we are giving these nuggets, delivery methods that are outside the control of the Taliban like the 24-7 satellite channel, the medium wave radios, along with social media and then putting this information on there for Afghans to consume. 
Do you have any sense of, is it possible to know the reach of that, you know, the, the population in terms of numbers and urban versus rural areas that that is reaching? Uh, well, our survey is, of course, not as comprehensive as they were pre-Taliban, uh, at which time we knew exactly how, but we've recently done surveys over the phone. Uh, so we have call-in shows, we've done surveys over the phone. We know that, uh, you know, our Ashna brand is trusted by 94% of Afghans. Uh, more than 7 million people watch us on television weekly. So that's like, at I'm talking about adult population, not children. So that's at least a third of adult population in Afghanistan. Similar numbers on, 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 um, on radio. We know from our social media interactions. So from August 2021, the takeover to December 2022, which just ended, we've had nearly a billion video views on Facebook alone. So that tells us that people are watching, people are coming to us, people are leaving comments, they're telling us that they want more of this. And we're trying to give them as much as we can. We are starting new TV show, new music shows. We are, we've started a show just about women. We are starting hard-hitting, hard-talk-like political shows. Like I said, wherever we see a vacuum, we're trying to fill it, but we have found that it, you multiply the effort when you hold hands with other media organizations, which is what we are doing. We are reaching out to others and saying, let's do this together. We've succeeded doing this in other countries, and we're now continuing to do that in Afghanistan. Right, right. Thank you. Um, Sarwan and Barry, I, I would like to hear from both of you what, um, similarly, what do you see happening and in terms of positive steps to try to uh, carve out, you know, hold on to this space. Um, Sarwan, would you like to? All right. <laughs> uh, okay. Uh, I think one of the, you know, always out of crisis, there are some opportunities that emerge. So the the opportunity that is emerged uh, in the past one year has been the, uh, you know, the use of a kind of hybrid media, uh, whereas the local uh, uh, news outlets, they still do a great job by, uh, you know, covering issues like uh, educational issues, health issues, but also informing people about what is happening in the country to some level. But obviously they cannot, they, there's a lot of restrictions. They, they cannot uh, cover mostly you know the news uh, that involves the opposition groups for example uh, as sarwan said you know the suicide attacks there's limited coverage of things like that and then also the demonstrations for example they have been barred from covering demonstrations and altogether you know a lot of sensitive issues that are concerned with the fate of the people and that people need to be informed about uh, especially what decision makers are, you know, thinking and going to uh, uh, do. Uh, th those are the sensitive issues that local uh, news outlets have a lot of problems covering and discussing and, uh, you know, running investigative uh, journalism uh, about. So on certain occasions, they do invite like analysts uh, from outside the country, but even through that, we've heard that they get phone calls and uh, get threatened every time they do that. So there is a, definitely a lack of, uh, I would say, 
quality in that respect. And that's being felt by media who are stationed outside the country. Mm -hmm. So normally there's a lot of data that's getting uh, produced inside the country, but it's communicated to, uh, uh, you know, um, uh, I would say both uh, media in diaspora and then international channels who then uh, run very high quality stories. So there is a cooperation taking shape between local and uh, uh, media in exile. Mm -hmm. And that's why it's very important to keep up this cooperation. That's why we, we need to keep the support for the hybrid media. Uh, um, you know, structure uh, where you've got um, local media, previously local media who are now operating uh, in a different country. Uh, why? Because first of all, most of uh, the um, highly qualified journalists have left the country and most of them, some of in stranded is still in Pakistan and uh, Iran and, you know, uh, they're uh, it is totally uncertain, but there are a number of them who have been evacuated in countries like uh, uh, the US and Europe. And their best place to produce high quality reports and run media outlets, but they need support. They need continued support. And uh, the local ones, uh, obviously, they have to be supported as well. They, they're the, the, the priority uh, and we can you know, I, I still think that there are uh, opportunities to engage with some, uh, as Jepsi said, civilian uh, departments within the Taliban structure, like Ministry of Information and Culture, who is now heading the Media Violations Commission, uh, to see uh, we have, for example, a representative right now uh, from uh, the Safety Committee and the um, Faculty of Journalism, you know, Journalism School of Kabul University, representing uh, journalists in that uh, Media Violations Commission, although the, the rest of them are all the Taliban, but it's still, you know, there are at least two voices. Uh, we could lobby to get a women representative, for example, in that uh, structure, or then the legal uh, and defense uh, support that's uh, very needed right now that was raised by um, Jepsi as well. And I also uh, talked about the legal vacuum right uh, at the moment. So there's just still like, uh, a lot that can be done, but I think the journalists outside Afghanistan, they need to get organized, well organized. Uh, so that they can decide how to approach, uh, you know, covering uh, the sensitive issues and making sure that the Afghan population do have finally access through different means, including social media, to those news stories, but also, uh, you know, exploring ways where, uh, you know, media and diaspora can cooperate with uh, uh, you know, locally based uh, news outlets. Mm -hmm. uh, there's no easy solution to this, uh, but uh, obviously, well, and we haven't much leverage left with the Taliban, obviously, but there is still, we can engage with uh, those pragmatic Taliban who think that, you know, uh, um, uh, returning to the old Taliban is not in their favor and mm -hmm. it would deny them the 
the engagement and ultimate recognition that they need in order to survive and uh, uh, sustain themselves. Right, right. You're also pointing to a like, tension here where the, uh, you know, we've seen this Taliban de facto government uh, in some, their, their identity, the, of the, the identity of the movement is so um, uh, closely tied with their opposition to the West and to the international community. It almost seems, you know, when, when the international community makes a demand, it's going to make it more likely that the Taliban says no. <laughs> There's one exception, though. So recently when the OIC, the Organization of Islamic Conference, made a statement, the Taliban did not outright deny it and actually were uh, almost forced to say, well, we welcome that they've had a deliberation on Afghanistan, even though we don't want them interfering, in the world to interfere. So what I'm saying is that it, their countries, especially when it comes mm -hmm. to Islamic countries, mm -hmm. Muslim countries, that it'll be far more difficult for the Taliban to push back. That's, that's exactly what I wanted to point to, you know, who's the right messenger, who is there, you know, who has leverage and influence with this government and what can the, so, so that is, you know, I, I think a lot of, uh, there's some hope that Muslim majority countries can um, make some, you know, especially on girls' education and women's employment and mobility and rights that, you know, if these messages are delivered by Muslim majority nations, will that be more effective? So um, it remains to be seen on a lot of these issues, really, but that's hopeful um, to hear. Um, could you, Gypsy and Sarvan, would you like to yeah. chime, jump uh, in? I think the uh, estimation shows that 11,000 uh, Afghans were in media newsroom or either working in media. So almost half of them, they lost their job physically in Afghanistan. The 30 percentage, they are about to lose their job due to financial issues right now, and as well the restrictions by the Taliban. So half of them, hundreds of journalists, if I can, there is no estimations, but thousands are evacuated, and they, uh, they are right now in safe places. These people, these journalists, became by themselves as independent media. They have sources, they have news they can bring bring news and the platform for them is twitter social media and uh, facebook this is another opportunity thousands of journalists right now on daily basis they are uh, producing news and uh, without to have a media outlet organization and they work under the organization second these journalists establish their own media in exile so they can cover those parts that right now no have no one can, no regular media can do it physically in Afghanistan. So they can cover with this part. They can easily have voices from the uh, National Front of Resistance. They can go to take a, a sound bites from the political leaders that they are uh, opposing the Taliban government or those people that they are working for human rights and women rights in order to take their uh, voices and cover untold stories that Taliban are trying to control. The second issue is those media physically they are in Afghanistan they are although under a lot of restrictions even if you call a normal journalist and you ask him that how many times Taliban asked you and uh, detain you for a short term one hour two hours and ask you do not do this and do this and they will everyone will experience once at least or twice or three times I heard from one of my friend last night and he said that they asked uh, the Taliban intelligence 
and the media section in intelligence. He asked uh, this editor and said, okay, do not report against Kal Daesh, this more insecurity and incidents that's not attributed to Daesh. Do not call Daesh and call it Khawarij. Khawarij in terms of Taliban Islamic view, it's a word that you uh, tell those people that they are existing from Islam. So in terms of Taliban, it's a very key issue that you call Khawarij, not Daesh, the label that they have. So second, do not report either military or political activity run by the resistance forces, that those people that they are against the Taliban and do action against. Third issue that they said that uh, to them, quote exactly our statement. The statement that they are uh, doing and uh, uh, publishing an issue, uh, get the exact statement and tell Mullah Batullah, their Amir, of their supreme leader, that Amirul Mu'minin and mention the word Hafazahullah. So, and, and, and I told the, the editor that uh, they are giving you this written, no, they are not giving that in written, but they are orally pressurizing media. But look at out, media are doing reports, but they are not doing and not following exactly what the Taliban are looking. And this is, the trend goes for almost 16 months. From the day one, they started to pressurize media, but it's almost one and a half year, but media is playing their role. They are doing report, although media in exile do are doing their own job and media physically there in Afghanistan. In order to have this and gain this, uh, international media like VOA and other media organization, they, uh, instead of limit their uh, programs, they increase their programs. And uh, as well, uh, other media organizations, so they uh, physically, they have offices in Afghanistan and as well in exile in, uh, in, in Western countries. So by that, I think we, we can sustain the first freedom in Afghanistan. And the good point is that Taliban thinking that we are uh, uh, eliminating bridges between the rural area and the urban area. So Taliban were representing in past like rural areas. Now they are in urban area. Now uh, people will have access to internet in rural area. So the, this opportunity create to media that they can have access throughout internet or digital platforms and digital media in order to reach out the audience in, mm -hmm. in rural area because Taliban and, and one of their minister of petroleum and mine minister in recent interview and he proudly uh, claimed that we are the, the government that we are limiting and eliminating the bridges between the rural area and, and uh, urban area. So now people have in rural area access to internet. So having radio in, uh, and, and internet that could be another tools for the international organization, other media organization that they can sustain their audience in rural area as well. Thank you. Thank you. I'm going to bring Gypsy into some of these questions from online participants, but I wanted to open it up to the room now. And re I'll remind all our listeners that um, those joining online, please submit your questions using the chat box function located at the uh, just below the video pl player on the USIP event, st uh, event page. We ask you, please include your name and specify from where you're joining us. And for those in the room, um, please just raise your hands and we'll come around with a microphone. Hi, good, uh, good morning. Good morning. Very good to see Kate Batman after many years. I'm not sure if she recognizes me. I am Ahmar Masti Khan. The, I'm a working American. Also Aisha Tanzim and the others here, distinguished. My question these days and my pet topic is, you see, I 
I wish there was a U.S. woman president and we should not have gone, gone into Afghanistan. But the thing is, I like to know how many women journalists are there in Afghanistan right now? How many were there before the Taliban came in? And since charity begins at home, I would please like to ask Ms. Aisha Tanzim, how many Afghan women are on the different desks like Pashto, uh, Tarai, and you see even include please Pakistan because that's not very far from the Afghanistan area. I like to know, you see, how many women are, and what have we done for them? Thank you. Mm. <laughs> oh. You want me to take it, or you want? Okay, I Mary wants to add something to this. Well, on on women's issue, um, I just saw that uh, Najib Sharifi, the head of uh, Protection Committee, is here. Joined us. Uh, uh, maybe he can. I can. I can just quickly add that there were about like nearly three thousand women before the, according to the Reporters Without Borders numbers, there were around three thousand before, and they're about like around seventy-five percent or more of them lost their jobs. So they're about like around five hundred. They may have fallen down since the uh, RSF uh, uh, the collected their numbers and as far as VO is concerned uh, we have a policy we have a lot of women journalists in our Dari and Pashto in our Afghan service in our diva service in Pakistan um, uh, our Afghan service chief is here maybe you can ask him later I don't know if it's 50 50 but they're quite a lot and we try in our shows even today when the shows are anchored some of our star anchors are females some of our star reporters uh, are females so we encourage women we are part of the 50 50 program which means even among our guests uh, we try to have equal number of men and women present. So we try to give, an, uh, give women as much representation uh, as possible and encourage, you know, uh, our workplace to be woman friendly. Uh, uh, but like I said, you know, we try our best. Just to add that, uh, well, the, the figure that I remember was that three out of uh, every four women journalists are out job and you know that uh, in 20 provinces at least you have no uh, working women journalists and the trajectory is looking at that it's getting worse uh, with every passing day so the you know there is a, a popular belief that a Taliban ultimately would like to uh, you know eliminate the women presence from the entire media section and with the ban that they have imposed on uh, women's jobs and you know in and also education uh, one wonders that uh, you know how could they grant an exception to women journalists so if this continues in the long run probably they would ban afghan journalists women journalists as well mm -hmm, mm -hmm. can i just quickly add to that women also have to be accompanied when they are doing the reporting. Yeah. They have to be escorted. So that is a, a further restriction. And I think one of the things in terms of solutions-oriented um, approaches that we have to do is that this issue of women journalists cannot be sort of um, separated from what's going on in terms of the education ban, right? Mm -hmm. it, is, it is about, and it, for us as an organization, we saw this happen very early on when, when the crisis unfolded, that women were immediately targeted 
um, and women immediately fled. Um, so it is about the erasure of not just women physically, um, the public sphere, but about um, women's realities being reflected and considered in um, the discussion about what is what it is to live in Afghanistan today. So the, the removal of the women journalists is very, very much tied to that. And I think there's a lot of discussion about the education ban without considering this aspect. To some degree, media is a way to educate the public. Um, because every day when you impart information that's independent, what you're doing is, is educating people about how things function and what is working and what the results are and so on and so forth. And so an informal education aspect that women would be leading as reporters is removed. Mm -hmm. And we can't have one discussion without the other. Mm -hmm. I'd like to actually follow up with Gypsy also on a question from um, uh, an online participant, Sevdet Sehan. I hope I'm getting this, his or her name right. Uh, please discuss ethnic minority journalists and media, media workers who are particularly vulnerable under Taliban rule. So, I mean, very similar. Could you speak to either what's happening in Afghanistan or, or what you see, um, parallels you see to other countries? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, we, we see, um, you know, outside of Afghanistan, Kurdish journalists across various geographies being targeted um, overwhelmingly. You, you see this playing out currently in Iran, but um, it is the case also with Iraqi Kurdistan. We actually um, gave an award to a, an Iraqi uh, Kurdish journalist in November because of this, of this reason, to bring the spotlight to, um, to that ethnic minority issue. Um, with Afghanistan, we immediately experienced this in relation to the Sahara um, ethnic minority. Um, which, which was also immediately targeted. Um, I did want to say something about the, if I may, about the, um, the social media platforms. We are very concerned as an organization about what is happening with Twitter at the moment. You spoke earlier about the, the checkmark being bought and, and that giving a certain degree of authority to people who would otherwise not be seen as an official authority on something. That's very problematic because those people then gain additional power to speak out against the media and to point fingers and misinform. Um, we recently wrote a letter to an open letter together with reporters without borders to Twitter's leadership um, in an attempt to to have the um, Trust and Safety Council, which was a, a group that would consult civil society and journalists um, and human rights defenders about policies and how the platform functions. Right. And how the platform protects. So that's something we're very concerned about. It happened at the time, you know, in August of, of, of 2021, when the, when the um, entire situation broke down, um, you know, the platforms were actually reaching out to groups like us and saying, is there something that we need to take into consideration? Are there specific journalists who are at risk that we should be looking at their accounts for doxing um, or any other risks? This is no longer happening. When you get into an AI model, um, of moderation and safety, 
the human element of judgment and protection is lost. So we're very concerned about that piece, despite the fact that it is an opportunity. And we, we certainly want that vibrant element to continue of getting the information out. So can you clarify why, why has the human element, is it just a change in Twitter's well, model? The, the change in leadership at Twitter means uh, that okay. the Trust and Safety Council was um, disbanded. Right. Um, so the groups are no longer being consulted regularly in terms of not just the um, any policies in regards to security and safety, but also in regards to how um, the platform is technically constructed. Right. So that's yeah. that's the reason this is happening. Yeah. This goes to another. There's a question from um, Farah Ahmed about. Uh, the role of technology in protecting journalists. So um, maybe you've just addressed that in part, but I wonder if we have another, um, any other questions in the audience for now? Thank you. Uh, is this on? I, I don't think so. It is, it is. Yeah, I, we can hear you on the mic. The mic's working. Sure, great. Uh, Radim Dragomaka, West End Strategy. Uh, thank you so much for your insights today and for shining a spotlight on this important issue. Uh, my question to the panel would be, what recommendations would you have for the U.S. government and U.S. civil society, given their unique responsibility and relationship to this, to this topic, of actions they could take in 2023 that would help support journalists both inside and outside of Afghanistan, and importantly, actions they could take that would not cause further harm. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you. Um, would you like, Aisha, would you like to address? Sure. Um, uh, both for the US government and for the US civil society, I think I would say as the, uh, you know, Partnerships, partnerships, partnerships. We exist in an era of scarce resources. Nobody on their own has the resources, whether it's financial resources or just the political capital with Taliban to do it alone. But like I mentioned, the two things that have happened, and I wanted to mention it, that it's hopeful in the journalism context as well. So <laughs> this morning, and actually it's probably yesterday's news, the NGOs, a few NGOs are returning to Afghanistan after assurances from Taliban that their women workers will now be allowed to work. And these are international NGOs. So of course, a lot of international pressure uh, was brought about on Taliban enough for them to back down enough to allow these few uh, NGOs to return, which means that if the countries partner up, if governments partner up, and I mentioned the example of OIC, the Organization of Islamic Council, there are countries like Qatar that have a lot of sway with Taliban. Uh, when Islamic, uh, when Muslim majority countries join up and join hands, they have a lot of uh, sway with uh, uh, Taliban. And remember, these Taliban. Uh, they're deriving their strength from the Sharia. And these Muslim countries have a lot of Muslim scholars who can actually debate Taliban on their own terms. So they're not, these scholars are not going there and telling them do it because America says so or because European Union says so. They go there and say, as the OIC statement said, this is not an Islam. And therefore, uh, you know, pushing them back where 
it matters more. So the more you partner up, so the international community has some leeway because the Taliban do need help. There's a severe humanitarian crisis in the country. 97% population is now poor. Uh, you know, a lot of them are facing acute sh uh, hunger and shortage of food. Taliban need help. They don't have the resources. Uh, even now, I was reading this morning that like 78 people died just because of the cold weather. The Taliban don't have the resources to deal with this. So they need help from international community financially. Their banking sector is collapsing. They need help. Plus, if they're deriving their strength from Sharia, the Muslim countries have an edge. They have a lot of scholars, including Hanafi scholars, with the same fiqh that the Taliban derived their uh, doctrine from, including, I mean, countries like Pakistan, which has madrasas, where a lot of these Taliban graduated from. Remember, the Haqqani network, Haqqani is not a tribe. It's the name of a madrasa, Darul Ulum Haqqaniya, which is what these people associate with. So that can be, and same with civil society organizations, partner up, you know, there are UN organizations, there are other organizations, there are private organizations. The more you partner up, the more of a leeway you have uh, with Taliban. Thank you, Barry, from your, your civil society, with your civil society hat on perhaps, could you address? Yeah, but also, you know, there's a lot of efforts going on right now on the part of the international community to engage with the Taliban on inclusivity, because that's the, uh, you know, the way forward, because uh, with the current state of uh, affairs, you know, things won't work for the Taliban. But also, uh, you know, there is something that the international community should ultimately do uh, about the fate of uh, our people and their rights uh, and about protecting uh, the hard won uh, achievements of the last 20 years with freedom of expression being at the center, at the very center. So in order to achieve that bigger goal of engaging with the Taliban and, you know, opening up the way for a national dialogue so that it can decide about, uh, uh, you know, the future uh, inclusive government, uh, maintaining and protecting freedom of expression and free media is very important. So there has to be uh, engagements, as uh, Aisha said, at political level, where U.S. United States government can leverage its power uh, and uh, engage with uh, various sta stakeholders, especially Islamic countries. And there are countries like Qatar who are directly involved and somehow representing the U.S. government uh, to pressurize the Taliban to soften their policies, but also on practical levels uh, I think there is a lot that the U.S. government can do, both supporting the uh, media in exile uh, so that we can protect the presence and the continued operation of a lot of journalists who would otherwise go and switch, uh, you know, jobs and professions, uh, but also supporting uh, media content production inside the country and also boosting, you know, the presence of women by incentivizing you know, media outlets to to uh, allow uh, women or, you know, engage with the Taliban to let them allow uh, women to work in uh, media uh, uh, outlets. So there's another aspect that uh, we talked a lot about. It's legal uh, aspect. That's a lot of, there is a lot of opportunity for that. Uh, 
in that sector that can be supported. So to 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 uh, you know clarify uh, the legal foundations of media operation in Afghanistan uh, by you know uh, providing technical expertise. And even I was at some uh, uh, the other day I was talking to uh, Scott about uh, the time I was in ICRC and we were. Uh, you know, providing training to Taliban uh, in the first, uh, you know, uh, era of the, uh, about the, you know, ICRC uh, rules and principles. So after getting to know certain things, you know, we would see some, some level of change in their behavior. The same could happen because at the certain levels, the Taliban do, uh, the authorities do accept that certain behaviors by the Taliban soldiers were inappropriate, but they say that, well, they're unaware. So that's uh, their excuse. They, they, they are uneducated, they're unaware of rules and, and policies and laws. So we could probably engage the Taliban um, uh, to, you know, to see if they can uh, allow training for, for the Taliban at different uh, levels. I mean, this looks a little weird, but it is possible. But more importantly, institutional support. Institutional support, we had a high media council in Afghanistan before. We had mass media law, we had media violations committee, and we had uh, RTA commission. So all these commissions are gone. Uh, or in one case, it's maintained but altered fundamentally uh, populated by Taliban uh, members. So these have to be revived, but more importantly, they entered the independent media support organizations uh, like the Federation, Nice Supporting Media, you know, the uh, Afghanistan Journalists Association, uh, Safety Committee, whose representative, the uh, director we have today with us. Uh, and he is doing a lot of work right now there, protecting our journalists. So the, the, there's a lot of avenues that uh, United States government can still continue to support these efforts, but and through these efforts, also the, the bigger goal of, uh, you know, uh, uh, forming a national dialogue on, on, on the future of Afghanistan. Thank you. Thank you, Barry. Um, we are very close to out of time. So um, I, I know Aisha has one more comment. Just very quickly, an anecdote uh, talking about, uh, you know, when I was last in Afghanistan post takeover before they stopped giving me visa, I talked to a lot of Taliban foot soldiers and low level military commanders. And I found it very interesting that A, they had no problem talking to me uh, and B, when I asked them point blank, what do you think about me as a woman do, doing this and that? Very few of them said this is wrong. Almost all of them said we defer to our Amir for this kind of decision. Hence the importance of engaging clerics because this is not Taliban en masse. The military commanders or the foot soldiers are often neutral or quote-unquote, more liberal than the clerics. It's when the clerics take over that things go downhill. Hence the need for all the Muslim countries or even countries like United States to engage with uh, respected Muslim scholars and clerics around the world and then tell them to engage with the Taliban and, and try to change the mindset there. Thank you. a very, very quick point to make, which is <laughs> the U.S. is exploring um, and there is momentum to 
um, actually craft a feminist foreign policy and the US would be joining a few other governments in that Canada, France, Germany and Sweden already have this, um, which would mean that there would be a, a strategy and a concerted effort to ensure that women journalists in particular are included in that approach and are therefore not targeted in the way that's happening now. So that's one thing that the U.S. government can do. The other thing is the U.S. is a critical player in the Media Freedom Coalition, which is a grouping of 50 plus journalists around the world that um, have pledged to support media freedom. Afghanistan had joined that group. Afghanistan's membership was revoked finally in November of last year. I say that because uh, CPJ is a part of the consultative network for the Media Freedom Coalition, but it seems to me that it kind of stopped there. Okay, we've revoked membership and what do we do next? Um, perhaps those governments are doing things individually and so on, but it seems to me that the Media Freedom Coalition has an opportunity to cohesively and together um, address this issue. And the U.S. does have a special responsibility to seek that um, kind of alignment and cooperation across governments in that grouping, which, which can be very powerful. Mm -hmm. Thank you. We're going to end on those hopeful notes. I invite our audience to join us for refreshments afterward and uh, the recording of the event, audio and video um, and audio only will be available online afterwards. So I encourage you to share widely with your friends and network. Um, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank, thank, you. thank you. Thank you for listening to this event. If you'd like to listen to more events or explore our other podcasts, visit usip.org forward slash podcasts.